Welcome to The Real Freedom Show, where we inspire you to pursue your passion to gain time and financial freedom through opportunities in real estate. I'm your host, Mike Swenson. Let's get some real freedom together. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Real Freedom, talking about building time and financial freedom through opportunities in real estate. I'm super excited today because we have an amazing episode. We are here with Kevin A. Malsh. Kevin's been an investor for 20 plus years. He formed Pine Financial Group back in 2008. Previous to that, had a degree in finance, also served in the U.S. Army. So thank you so much for your service there. Worked in Wall Street, and then now you're you're doing lending. And so we'll talk a lot about that, a lot about the investor space. 2,400 transactions that you've helped with as buyer, seller, or lender, and you have four funds totaling. $130 million in private capital, also the author of The 45-Day Investor, and a lot of other cool stuff that we will get into in the episode. So thanks, Kevin, for coming on the show. What an intro. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, yeah. Why don't you just go ahead and give us a little bit of that background, set the stage. Um, you know, on our podcast, we really want people to see and hear different stories of how people have found success in real estate. And we know people are wired different ways passionate in different areas. And so that's why I really love to share people's stories of kind of their origin story of how they got where they're at, because I want somebody to to listen to this episode now or in the future and be like, oh, Kevin came from that background and did that. I want to do that too. Awesome. So when I was really young, we were, we were um, lower middle class. We didn't have a lot of money. So all my friends, they would have more Christmas presents than I would, for example, or they would get purchased, you know, they would get the new, the new bicycle. And I, and I, I didn't have that um, but I, I wanted all of that, of course. So I was always thinking, like, how can I make money? How can I have what my friends have when my my family can't provide that? So then I would start doing like a lot of us, right? We mow lawns, we shovel snow, we start our own little businesses. I was selling candy at the at the school, and then I went into the army and I started reading books about investing. Like, how can I invest this money that I'm making while I'm in the military? And everything was pointing to real estate. So I bought my first house. It sounded like a great idea. Moved into it. Lived there for two years, did the whole house hack thing before that was even a term, moved out of it and kept it as a rental. And I saw that I was a, I was getting money from appreciation. I was getting tax benefits, which I didn't have a lot of income. I didn't necessarily need that, but I saw that on my tax returns. I saw the cash flow and I saw that, look, this tenant, this tenant's paying my mortgage off for me. I mean, they're doing that. So like that's when I realized that real estate's more to me, more than just an investment. It's a fantastic investment. I know a lot of your clients do that more on the passive side. Um, I wanted to turn it into a career like you. So I, I got into real estate as a career um, be, after that very first rent. So I just knew that was the vehicle that was going to make me rich. What was your next step from there after having that first property to you know now having $130 million in funding yeah. to do that? So how, do, how does that start? Because I know for a lot of people, especially people on the lending side, even for, for me working with investors, it's hard to see like, how do you, how do you grow that? It's very interesting because that very first rental property and that very first tenant was my very first eviction. And that was the worst eviction I've had in all my 20 years in the business. And I made some gigantic mistakes with that first one. Sometimes I'll get interviewed on a podcast like this and they'll ask me like, how do you go through that experience and stay in the business? But it's all about your drive and your passion, right? And I, I wanted what my friends had. <laughs> I mean, I was still that kid. So I, I got through that. But how did I go from that rental property, that eviction to $130 million fund. Well, I, I started buying a property or two every single month while I was in school and I had a part-time job. And I couldn't do that with down payments in the very traditional way that people buy properties. I had to find a way to do it with no money. So I, I learned 
owner carry. I earned, I learned lease options. I learned different creative financing strategies. And I started, and that's how I was able to buy one or two houses a month. But here's where it gets to the fund. I fell in love with the finance side of real estate because I understood from my creative financing background that the financing side of real estate has everything to do with the deal structure. So we talk about going out and hunting for the deal, hunting for the the project, wanting to buy that investment and finding it. That's the fun part of the business. Well, when you're making an offer to a seller or you're negotiating with a seller of a property, how you're going to fund it, where that money is coming from has everything to do with how you negotiate, how you present the offer, how, how you're going to you know, come up with the offer in the contract, how you write it in. So I fell in love with the financing side. So I just started lending money out. And it was very traditional at first. And that sucked. It was really hard. Um, traditional mortgage banking, mortgage brokering. So I was like, I don't have any control here. I don't, I don't know how anybody operates a business when they don't have control over decision making and that kind of thing. So that, I just started raising private money because when, when I when I have control of the capital, I can make smart, common sense decisions. I don't have to stay inside of a little box, but they their default rates way higher than mine because they 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 don't look at how am I going to get paid back. They say these are the guidelines we have to hit. And if we hit those, I'm going to do the loan, even if it's a terrible borrower or a terrible project, right? So we could look at the entire picture, make good solid decisions, and help real estate investors with their projects. And I guess that's a real fast way through how I got to where I am today. In terms of raising that capital, I talk with people all the time and and they want kind of the easy button of like, oh, mm-hmm. I've got this property. I'm just going to magically have this person come out of the sky, give me the money, and I'm going to pay him back and never see him again. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I think that's the ideal situation if they want, but how does that work in real life in terms of raising capital and being responsible for people's money? Mike, I'm so glad you asked that question because we hear a lot of the gurus out there or when you, you get on the forums, like on Bigger Pockets or something. You'll, you'll see, hey, if you find a great deal, the money will find you. We see, we hear that. We see it all the time. That is absolutely not true. And you're describing it perfectly. If you even if, Just because you have a good deal does not mean the money is just going to be attracted to you. I think you need to find money first, personally. I think you should always be trying to, to find different sources of capital. And if you're looking at private money and that's how you want to fund your real estate transactions, you need to be out there networking, talking to people. Um, <clears throat> I think it's when you start, when you start talking about private capital, your credibility is far more important than your cash or your credit. They want to know that you have the ability to pay them back. So as long as you can sell that story, you'll be able to get the projects funded. And I think the the thing that most people don't realize, and I, I alluded to it, is you're building relationships with people. You're wanting mm-hmm. you're wanting that person to continue to invest money with you. And so you have to do a good job with it. If you don't pay them back, or if you have a problem paying them back and have issues, they're not going to want to lend to you again. It's how much less expensive to keep, you know, retain an existing customer versus finding a new customer. Right. Yeah. That investor is is your current customer. And so you've got to make them happy. You've got to create wins for them. And you also have to look them in the eye and tell them what's happening with their money. And I think sometimes people, like you mentioned, find the right deal, the money will find you. You also have to look that person in the eye and tell them how their money's doing. And for me, I take that responsibility really important. And so I want to make sure I'm being a good steward of their resources. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because we, in our business, it's just the nature of our business. We don't take a lot of losses. We don't take a lot of defaults. We're not doing a, like a syndication and and we're not subject to like big market fluctuations. We're, so so I don't get this opportunity very often. <clears throat> but when something does go wrong, like you're describing, and you're, you're not able to maybe return the money or it's going to come a little slower than they thought, that, Mike, is when I've raised the most money. 
because you're you're just trans when you can be transparent about that and you pick up the phone and you just call them and walk them through exactly the mistakes you made and this is where we're at they, there's a sense of comfort there it seems and 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 the biggest risk with lending money in this industry is fraud i would much rather invest in someone's project and it go bad and me lose money that way then invest with people that I don't trust, right? So when you're finding money from people, how much are people giving? How has that grown over time? I'm just kind of curious, are people writing big checks? Is that small checks that grow a little bit larger as you prove yourself or, or how did, how has that grown over time? Yeah, so we, we have investors all the way from $10,000 up to like 17 million. So we have a pretty wide range here. We really do like to work with everybody. So when we structure our funds, we structure them so we could take accredited and non-accredited investors. A lot of the funds out there are accredited investors only, which is super restrictive, right? You can't, if you're not, if you don't qualify for an accredited investor, which is a million dollars in net worth exclusive of your house or a high income level, 200,000 single, 300,000 with a spouse. So it's pretty hard to hit that for some people. And if, and if you don't hit that, you don't have opportunities like this. So we've decided that every fund we have we are going to allow non-accredited investors in it. Now it's a little bit trickier when working with the SEC because they're 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 more strict around that. So we have more reporting, we have audited financials, we have all of that. Uh, but yeah, that's the range 10,000 10, all the way up. And you mentioned you have four different funds. How did those different funds work? Yeah, so it's interesting. You learn see so you learn something with every deal you do, right? So that first fund was in 2009. And we created that fund because the feedback was we want liquidity, we want diversification, and we want smaller investment amounts. So I had three objections I had to overcome. And by creating a fund, I was able to overcome all three. Now people were investing in my fund. But the mistake I made is I didn't charge any management fees. So now the only way I was making money was charging fees to my borrowers for origination. And then everything was going to the investors, which was great for them. But I, I was learning that it was not so easy to manage that money. And then I deserve to get paid for that. So we we still have that fund, but we closed it down to new investments and we started our second fund. And then we hit a non-accredited investor limit um, by the SEC. There's 35 and different types of offerings have different rules, but this one is a 35 non-accredited investor limit. We hit that, we had to start another one. And it got better, like each fund got better. And then we said, well, why don't we do like a public fund so we could advertise for these investors and we could help more people? We won't be limited to 35 non-accredited. We could have unlimited. So we went to reg A route, which is only all that means is that it's public. So that's where we get into ex like extensive reporting. Um, we're our attorneys are on the phone with the, the regulators frequently. We have audited financials. We have all of that stuff that you would get with a public company simply so we could help more people and advertise. And what would be the thought process of doing a fund like that, or maybe just explain the difference between doing a fund versus investing in a particular building, let's just say like a hundred unit apartment complex or something like that. Why did you choose to kind of go the fund route versus a specific project? Yes. Yeah, so when you start talking about individual assets like that, then we're starting to get into syndications. So when you have syndications, here's some of the downfalls to it. I, I, I invest in a lot of syndications, so I'm not saying that they're bad. They're, they can be very, very good, actually. But they can be bad also because of the I'm in five. I've invested in probably 15 or so. I'm still in five now. And of the five, only two are performing as expected. Three of them are not. And two of those three had capital calls, which means I had to inject more capital into the project. So in, in the debt fund like we're in, where we make loans to real estate 
against real estate, we don't have capital calls. That just can't happen. We Our velocity is going too quickly. And if if we need to um, not do a deal, then we just say no to a specific loan because we don't have the money, right? We don't have like taxes to pay on a property or something like that. Um, so I, I like the way we do it and we're diversified, right? If you're invested in a single asset, you're not diversified at all, but there's upside. I mean, you get the, the tax benefits of owning a piece of the property. Um, if there's an, a swing in the market and the value goes up, you get to participate in, in that as well. Um, so you could have higher returns in the syndication type deal. It's just when you're talking about investing in one specific asset, it's it can be a little bit riskier. And you mentioned the goals of your fund. What types of properties really make the most sense for Pine Financial? Yeah, so we stay pretty diversified. Um, and we do both commercial and residential. Um, my background's in residential. I feel very comfortable there. It's more liquid. It's e- it's easier to rent out. Um, you don't have these long vacancies. So I, I've i chosen to take the portfolio and do 80% resi and 20% commercial. That way we can keep some, some diversification there. Um, the residential side, it's, I mean, both is is all value add. So on the, on the residential side, it's all fix and flip, some new construction, infill new construction projects, but it's quick turn, right? We want our money out and back, out and back. That helps keep us safe as well. And then on the commercial side, um, it's all repositioning. So think about, an, you know, we're hearing a lot about office conversions. I'm not seeing a lot of that. I keep reading about it, but I haven't seen a lot of that. Seen a lot of res, um, like we're doing big box and they're chopping it up into smaller, smaller retail centers and that kind of thing. Store, they're turning malls. We're seeing malls being converted to storage. Uh, but so anytime, anywhere, anywhere you can add value to a commercial, we're, we're, we're doing the uh, bridge financing on that. I was curious to hear your thoughts on the commercial environment right now, because I know yeah. that there's a lot of uncertainty, but you know, with people working from home, with things changing, with such a demand for residential housing and a housing shortage, what's your take on the commercial space? I got to tell you, I'm a, I'm a little nervous, Mike, because we have 1.5-ish trillion dollars of commercial debt coming due in the next two years. Well, actually 18 months. That's a, that's a lot. That's almost half of all the loans that are out there coming due so quickly. And the problem with these loans coming to maturity is they can't refinance because they don't qualify anymore with the debt uh, debt coverage ratio. So banks qualify commercial loans based on the asset's performance, not the borrower's performance. So the asset itself has to produce cash to pay off the debt. And so the ratios are usually 120, so 1.2 or 1.25 so that there's 120% of what's needed to pay the debt is what's being generated net from the property. Well, that was great at a 4% interest rate, but now you're at six and a half or seven on the commercial space. Th- those aren't those aren't covering the ratios are not covering anymore. The, the property does not produce enough money to pay those higher interest rates. So what's going to happen when you have all of these maturities coming due and they don't qualify for modifications or extensions or refinances? So I think that's going to be a big problem. And worst case, we're going to start seeing either the banks writing loans that are much below lower interest rates than they're maybe even be, than they're paying depositors. Um, and then that's that's how the savings and loans crisis happened. The depositors were getting paid too much. So you can't bring in money at five and loan it out at four, right? That's a recipe for a, a bankruptcy. <laughs> but so it's either that or we're going to start seeing defaults and they're going to have to get these assets off of their books. So I'm really concerned with the loan maturities. Um, but Gosh, beyond that, you're start you are starting to see defaults. You're starting to see syndications like we were just talking about. They're turning keys back, right? They're starting to sign over properties, high rise, uh, high rise um, office and 
a lot of apartment buildings. So I, I think that, and then I could just keep going. I'm sorry. I know we got a short. No, this here, is good. This is good. I love it. There's a problem in banking too. I just read a report that there's 189 banks in the U in the United States that are at risk of going out of business because their non-insured depositor deposits are too high. They have too much non-insured deposits. So if you think about the FDIC, so they're going to insure you up to $250,000 in an account, right? So you're good up until that. If, if the bank gets in trouble, the government bails them out. But above that, the government's not supposed to bail them out. The the, the depositor can lose that money. It's, it really is at risk. And, and for those 80, 189 banks, for example, if if we were to catch wind on which banks those were, which it's not being disclosed, my guess is there would be a run on that bank, right? Everybody would want to get their money out, especially those non-insured deposits. And that will accelerate the collapse in the banking system. Great. Happy news <laughs> all around. So. Sorry. No, but that's this all affects This affects commercial because, and back to your question, because we don't have the Fannie and Freddie, except for the multifamily. You do have it there. But in the office and in, re, in industrial and retail, you don't have these, these government-backed loans. These are all regional banks that are making these loans. So if we start seeing a collapse in the banking system, you're not going to have money for to, for for people to buy these assets. So if there's no way to no 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 buyers, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. That's a collapse, right? That's going to be a collapse in value. So there's some concern here. Yeah. Residential, I, I put in a whole separate category because I think that that's somewhat insulated. So if I was an, an individual looking for financing and I was to come to you, what types of projects are you looking at or what are some of those numbers? You mentioned DSCR loans and, and those ratios, but we've also got people that maybe haven't worked in the fix and flip space that much or don't know how all those numbers work. Talk through what are some products that you have where you can really help out somebody looking to purchase a property? So the DSCR, that's really on cash flowing assets. So if, you're, if it's a long-term financing, you're going to run into that ratio. For us, we don't we don't have that. We don't care if the property is producing cash because our loans are so short-term that you're going to pay us back by either refinancing it or selling it. Um, so we don't care so much about a DSCR ratio. What we care about is loan to value. And we're talking about a loan to after repaired value on the residential side. So 70% of ARV, after repaired value, is what we're looking at. Um, and and we'll we don't have a loan to cost ratio at least not right now. Um, that could change with the environment, but right now it's 100% loan to cost, 70% loan to ARV value. So if you're finding a good solid fix and flip, strong numbers, we could potentially finance all the purchase, all the construction, and all your closing costs. So it could literally be a no money down deal, but we cap it again at the 70% of ARV. Now on the on the commercial side, we're looking for little bit stronger guarantor. So we're a higher net worth, higher liquidity. Um, we're, we don't have necessarily a loan to cost ratio on that one, although every deal is a little bit different. Um, but we definitely have a loan to value and it's a stabilized value. So whatever the banks, the banking world would consider stabilized, 92, 93, 94% occupied, something like that. Um, different asset classes will have different ratios. But once we hit that stable and what is that worth at that point? And we're going to go 65% of that number. For people then that aren't familiar with the ARV, like you mentioned, you're really looking at value add properties. And so that after repair value, you want to see a big growth between where they buy it at and what they can sell it for after those repair costs. And it could be, like you said, they could get it for zero cash out of pocket. Or if it's maybe not quite as good of a deal, they're going to have to put some money in. But you're looking to be able to get the property, fix it up, turn it, and have that quick turnaround 
turnaround so that you can get your money back and go invest it somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not cheap, right? I mean, we're hard money. I know we're the industry is trying to get that term out of the industry. They're trying to call it private money or something, but it's been hard money for the last 20 years as far as I'm concerned. So it's it's hard money. It's expensive. You don't want to pay those high rates very long, right? You want to get in and out as quickly as possible. Then you that's how you make more money. So for those higher rates, you offer a little bit more convenience. You have less restrictions. As long as it fits in that box, you're willing to loan on that versus if I went to XYZ big national bank, they're probably going to say, go kick rocks. If I brought yeah. that proposal to them, you're going to say, yeah, let's do it. And so the benefit of working with you is you're funding deals that a lot of these big banks wouldn't even look at. That's why we're a bridge, right? So you've, you've heard mm-hmm. the Burr strategy, the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, that whole thing. Fantastic strategy. The way that works the best is if you never put a dime into the property. So if you could bring in someone like me and finance 100% of it, or as close to that as possible, get it cash flowing and then the bank wants it right now it's habitable now you got a you got a tenant in there now they're comfortable with it then you refinance it and you pay me off so really your only down payment if there is one is on that very initial purchase because on the refinance they roll all those costs into the loan so mm-hmm. that's how you can get into properties with very little or no money down and have a 30 year fixed very turnkey after you go through the work. I mean, you got to find the project and do the work, but then you have that turnkey long-term rental. How does that work on the ARV? Are you essentially projecting that out based on the plan at the time of the purchase? And then what happens if that changes from the actual work that happens and that ARV doesn't come out quite as what you thought it was going to be? That's funny because it does change. And even though we say (laughs) don't change your plan because everything's based on your plan, it, it does change. But normally for the better. So give you an example. A lot of times people say, well, I'm not going to finish the basement because I can't get the value out of it, right? It's very rare that you'll get the value out of a finished basement on the sell side. So if you're going to flip it, but if you add a bedroom down there, you could rent it for more. So you're adding more rental value. So let's say you're going to flip it and then, okay, now I want to keep it as a rental. Well, maybe I'm going to do a little bit less high-end finishes and I'm going to use that money to finish a basement. So that changes the entire plan. But I'll tell you, it also adds a lot more value to it, right? Because you you do get value. You don't get the value for the cost, but you do get value for um, your appraisal. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense what I'm saying? You get value for it, but it's, it's very rare that it equals the co- what it costs you to do it. The answer to your question is, yeah, we base it on your plan and what it's comped to. So you say you're going to do this level of finish, granite, stainless steel, whatever. We're going to whole comps with fully remodeled properties. And that's what we're going to use to comp your property. There's a lot of great uses out there. And yeah, for different investors, if you're not a fix and flipper, your products aren't necessarily in their sweet spot. For those people that love that strategy, you're absolutely a great go-to person. And so sometimes I think investors or people considering investing get so hung up on picking the the best strategy, the right strategy. And a lot of times it's about getting started and learning. And so a fix and flip is the way you want to go. You're obviously the, the right person to talk to, to help walk them through those steps so that they can get that refi. And yeah, like you said, that in an ideal scenario, you're just getting the money in, getting it back, and then they go to another property and they can do multiple properties without having to put much cash into it. And that's the benefit of that strategy. Yeah. And it's real estate flipping is is not investing. We all call flippers investors. That's not investing, right? What you do is investing. This is a job. It just happens to pay very well if you're good at it. Mm -hmm. I always say, if you want to flip, flip. That helps me, right? Because that's my business. But by gosh, please go out and buy some rentals and try to acquire assets that are actually going to pay you down the road. 
that I, I'm a big, big believer in that. Talk a little bit about 20 years ago, you got started in this business. You've obviously raised a lot of money along the way. How has being in real estate and investing in real estate impacted your life? You know, I love that question. I, I ask that question a lot too, because it's it's pretty amazing the responses you get. Like it's an emotional response a lot of times. First, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to Kilimanjaro. I'm going to go climb Kilimanjaro. I'm leaving tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. I would not be able to take two weeks off, no cell phone, and go do a bucket list item if real estate wasn't part of my life. But that's only one thing. Now, we talk about if you're going to be successful, you need to have a, a strong why. In fact, I'll go so far to say, Mike, if you have a strong why, strong enough why, you can't fail. Like you literally cannot fail because the only way you fail is if you stop. If your why is strong enough, you'll never stop. So I, longer story short, I, my dad took care of me. He was a single father. He took care of me, my brother and my sister all by himself. He gave up his entire life. Now, I already told you we didn't live like upper class, right? It was lower middle class and we didn't get everything we wanted, but he gave up everything for me. I would not be here what I'm doing without him, including his retirement. And then he got to retirement age and he's like, the heck am I going to do? I have no money. I can't, I can't retire. So he just, he's grinding and he's grinding and he's grinding. And I was like, my why is going to retire, be to retire my dad. And I'm going to do that by, I'm going to buy him a house. I'm going to pay for it free and clear. He's not going to have any debt on it. And he's going to be able to live there. No mortgage. And I did it. I would not have been able to do that without real estate. Awesome. You talked about the challenges, your first eviction being your hardest eviction and all that. And what I'm often reminded of, and, and I do mindset coaching is, would you expect to be able to go climb Kilimanjaro and not have any hassles in your business? No, right? So there is a trade-off there. You are going to have to take on stress. You're going to have to take on hassles to be able to get that reward. However, you have the opportunity to get that reward because you're going through that work. So awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That's great. Real estate agents, are you tired of letting the busyness of your real estate business get in the way of your real estate investing goals and your financial future? I'm excited to announce that we've created the Real Freedom Investor Agent Tribe to help you. We've got a ton of content, educational tools to help accelerate your learning curve and get you on the right path to hit your investing goals. We also have a mastermind tribe of people just like you, agents that wanna grow their own portfolio and encourage you and cheer you on along the way, as well as some private one-on-one -on -one coaching. So go to realfreedom.com, click on the store, you'll see the options there. We're so excited to be able to help you. I've priced it super low so price can't get in the way, but did wanna have some skin in the game for you to help with that accountability. So go check it out, realfreedom.com, click on the store. We're excited to connect with you and excited for you to connect with your tribe of real estate agents, investing, trying to build their financial freedom. For people that want to get to know more about Pine Financial, learn more about you, Kevin, how can they do so? Yeah, two ways. We talked a little bit about the economy and what I think is going on. And we get the questions all the time. Is this going to be a 2008 again? Because a lot of us remember that. But what we don't remember is what happened in after the savings and loan crisis and leading up into the, act, the real estate crash in the 90s. So we lost, we call it a crash. We lost about 14% of the values in real estate in the, in the early 1990s. And it's almost exactly what we're going through right now. High inflation, high interest rates, right? That's what we're experiencing right now. 2008 does not resemble this at all. Okay, these are very different, but it does resemble 1990. So I did a report on that crash or that recession and what we're going through right now, just so you can see the similarities and see what might be coming. Um, so you can get that report for free at thepinereport.com. That's thepinereport.com. Or you can just reach out to us. Um, you know, we're in Minnesota. We do a lot of events out there. We love coming out there. You know, we're in Colorado. Minnesota is our two primary markets. You can reach us at uh, uh, pinefinancialgroup.com. Thank you so much, Kevin, for coming on and sharing. And best of luck to you guys as you continue to grow.